Good morning. We are glad that you're here today. I heard Michael ask people how they were doing earlier at the beginning, saying, how was your morning? And somebody just responded with one word, coffee. <laughs> That's good. That kind of sums that up. Okay, go to Genesis chapter 6, if you would. Go to Genesis chapter 6, whether you have it electronically or maybe a hard copy with you. You're going to see the verses along on the screen. If you're new to New Hope, that, that'll help you pick up where we're at in the story. Before we get to that, I'm going to pray with you. But before we get to that, uh, just a kind of a reminder that next weekend is baptisms here at New Hope. And that's always a great celebration. There, there's upwards of 20 people that are signed up right now. So that'll be a great weekend. But if you're interested in being baptized, you haven't yet been baptized, contact the church office this week and we'll talk you through that and help you get set up for the baptism service next weekend. And then one other detail, um, with summer here, essentially, praise God for the weather, right? How fantastic is this? Thank you. Um, that means summer vacations are almost here. And that means People are going to open houses and weddings and leaving on vacation. And I'm here to just kind of remind you that we really could use some help in children's ministry. So if you find yourself wanting to plug in some way and serve here at New Hope, there's a great opportunity. If you'd visit with Debbie after the service, she was at the children's registration desk in the children's wing. She'll be happy to talk to you about that. If you're junior high, high school, or older on up, and you want to serve in some way, catch up with her. She'll talk to you about the various areas that you can serve within. Okay, let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll step into this passage. Father, we pause and slow down our hearts right now in order to take opportunity to ask you and invite you to teach us that you would speak through your written word and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make things incredibly clear to us how we're supposed to take this ancient story and apply it to 2022. We're living in an age, Father, where many times we could feel like it doesn't apply. I pray that you would show us and apply it to us. And as a result, we'll know how to carry it into tomorrow, in a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, and that we'll be able to speak into the lives of people that we know. So equip us now, Father. We pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Throughout this entire journey in E2E, if you're new here, E2E is eternity to eternity. And we're working away from Genesis to Revelation. I've been reminding you along the way that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus and the New Testament. So the Old Testament, New Testament together, it's, it's all about Jesus and it, it's pointing to him. So I'm not sure in light of that, that you're going to find any place in the Old Testament where there's a more beautiful image of what Jesus has done for us than what you find in the pages of the story of the great flood. And you might be thinking, how in the world does that work? I want to show you. I want to help you to understand how you see Jesus in the midst of this. But to get there, God has to take us to a pretty dark place. He has to show us what it's like to have life without him what the depravity of this planet is like and how dark, dark, dark it actually is. So in order to take such a really significant venture, we first have to grasp a biblical reality. And the biblical reality is this. The Bible makes it very, very clear that God does not change. I hope you agree with that. God does not change 
at all, and he does not adapt to culture as much as we would like to think that he might. So Scripture says this in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Meaning what he said 8,000 years ago is just as true and just as relevant today. Meaning this, if God says something is sin and culture says it is not sin, someone's wrong. And I'm guessing I know who. Because God is not wrong. God never changes. So settle this issue in your heart first. If God changes in any way whatsoever, we have a far more significant issue on our hands than whether or not God cares about human behavior. Because if God changes even in the slightest, He might change His mind about your salvation. He could change in any way if He changes in any way. So we need to settle this in our mind. That would be a much more significant issue than whether or not He's going to destroy people in this flood. But Scripture clearly declares this, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 1 Samuel 15, 29, God will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Now, some people may not like what the Bible says or do not believe what the Bible says or care for what it implies, but that doesn't make it any less true. The reality is we have to know that first in order to deal with the really hard stuff, and we're going to deal with the really hard stuff right up front, especially the issue of God's wrath. And while it's extremely dark at the beginning, I promise you, I'll commit to you that the light of God breaks through and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter, and you're going to see that. Let's start with verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. It says this, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Last week, he really discovered as we were working through this just exactly what this is describing because we found that this world that Noah lives in, the condition of it is very, very dark. Spiritually, there's no desire to know God. People are not walking with God. So check this. We're only 1,600 years from the point of creation. And the wickedness of the planet has reached such monumental proportions that God himself has to say, these humans that I made, all they want to know day and night, continually, all they're chasing after is evil. Let me show you how you see that in this. Genesis 6, 5, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I introduced a word to you back in Genesis chapter 1 when it was talking about the creation of the planet. And we saw this repeated phrase, morning and evening, first day, morning and evening, second day, morning and evening, third day, morning and evening, fourth day. The word that was used there is yom, Y-A-W-M, the way we would pronounce it. And, and that particular word, yom, it's talking about something going on continually, day in and day out. That's the concept. But there's another word I want to press down on, and that's this word you see on the screen right now, yatzer. And it's talking about what God declared when he said every intent of the thought. So catch the definition. The thing that's formed in the mind, it, it produces the thought. There's the concept. And you might be thinking right now, well, 
okay, so like they're, if they're thinking evil, what's so wrong with that? The, the thought gives way to action. So yatser is this thing that's framing the imagination according to the definition. This exact same word was used in Genesis chapter 2 when we're told that God formed man from the dust of the ground, Adam, mankind. Out of the imagination, out of the creative ability of God, He formed and it took action. So catch this. What God has already said just in verse 5 is that God formed humanity by design, by the intention of His thought, and He framed us. And humanity has taken its God-given design and God-given ability. He made us creative also. And at this time, God took their God-given ability and they used it to design evil continually, day in, day out, morning and evening, never ceasing. And that's why Genesis 6-5 starts out so very, very, very dark. And the depravity reaches such extremes that my understanding is there's this intentional engagement, as we saw last week, with the fallen angels. And as soon as we read of the wickedness on the planet, we're told Noah, however, found favor in the eyes of God. If you've got the King James Version of the Bible, it actually says this in Genesis 6, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So while sin is at its high point, right at the very maximum of what it can do, grace is there and it's on display, which is a match for what we referred to last week in which Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Grace is already on display here in the earliest pages of Genesis. So we've got one family and they're living in the midst of a perverse generation. And they're the only righteous ones among all the families on the planet, which is absolutely mind-boggling to me. We've done the formulation already, and we've showed that not just hundreds of thousands of people, not just millions of people, not tens of millions, but very likely into the billions of the population. And God says on the entire planet, there's only eight individuals who are living in such a way that I'm going to make a movement towards saving them. God's Word declares it very clearly, 1 Peter 3.19, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then as if to amplify that, God says it Himself in Genesis 7 verse 1, then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone, you're the only ones on the whole planet, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So Peter was amplifying, God's been really patient. He's been waiting, and Noah's been preaching righteousness through his life. He's living a godly example. And God's mercy has been on display for 120 years for anyone that would respond, and yet none do. So Genesis 6 really stresses that this, this vast wickedness was so bad that all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. That's what it amplifies. Yet we've got this one guy, Noah, and his family, and he sets his face against the current of culture. He takes a stand against public opinion, and he stands for the Lord. Were he alive today, 
I'm very confident. You choose the subject, no matter what it is. Whatever God is for, Noah's going to be for. Whatever culture is for, if it's against God, Noah's going to be against it. Were he alive today, that's the kind of guy he would be. He'd be right on the front lines. So during this time when Noah's living righteously and he's preaching righteousness at the same time, what we read is that God is preparing to pour out wrath on a planet full of people because they've rejected him and they've abandoned him. And here's where it becomes a bit of a hiccup for us living in 2022. We sing songs like, you're a good, good father. And it really messes with our mind to find that that good, good father also has a wrath nature. We love the component that he's a good, good father and that he loves us immensely. But it makes it really complicated that that loving God also has this wrath, the wrath nature and it goes against the imagination of humans. So if you're, you're new to church or maybe you're even new to the subject, what you should know is that God's wrath is not ever an emotional outburst. It's never uncontrolled rage. We do that as humans. And so we think naturally that that's a way to fit the definition to God and we apply that imagery to God. Here's the way that we need to understand God's wrath. God's attributes are perfectly held in balance. So I think it would be logical to say, if we understand that God is complete, we would say God is 100% love. You can't say God is 80% love and 20% wrath. But if he's 100% love, that means he's complete, he's not incomplete. If he's incomplete, he wouldn't be God. So if he's 100% love, he also then has to be 100% wrath and 100% mercy, and 100% patience, and 100% justice. Any less than that, he would not be God. But where we need to stop and clarify is the reality that he's 100% righteous wrath, and everything he does is righteous, and it's always balanced against his other attributes. So I am convinced that we cannot grasp the great love of God and the full measure of his love until we weigh the fierceness of God's wrath, especially his wrath against sin. Well, that's exactly what you find in the flood account. So let's dive into the flood account. And what you'll find we're allowed to do is we're allowed to follow these course of events from God's own perspective. It's as though we get a front row seat in heaven and we're peering down with God over the surface of the earth and we see what the Lord sees. We follow the conversations and we get to listen in and we get to follow his judgments on the earth. Here's where it goes. Verse 11, chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Let's keep going, stay in context. Verse 13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Let's pause there for just a moment. If, if you've heard the concept or the thought that this was a regional flood, that verse destroys it. And the many verses in the story destroy that thought. It was a global flood. So God says the end of all flesh. There's no misunderstanding what he's saying here. For the earth, the entire planet is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. 
Uh, what I want to bear down on is the word corrupt. And you see this Hebrew word in your notes this morning, and you see this on the screen. God has said it's not just decaying, but it means that. They've ruined the planet. They've utterly destroyed. It's been laid waste. Now, what pops in our mind when we think of that is we think of maybe like what happened in the Ukraine in certain cities where the Russians have laid waste to certain cities. Or, or we think of vast pollution and they've contaminated the planet. That's not what this is talking about. We've been looking at the reality that this planet is a beautiful place to live. It's, it's like this terrarium and they've got a wonderful climate and they're prospering economically and they're advancing society and scientific discoveries are being made. That can't be what God's talking about here when he says it's utterly waste. It's clear to Noah. Noah can see it. He's living in the midst of a human sewer. So Noah has heard God's own declaration of the real world circumstances. And he doesn't ask for any clarity on the issue when God announced it. He can see that God has been spurned because the scripture says men love darkness rather than they love light and their deeds are evil. So God's pronouncement to Noah is this. Noah, it's a, it's a really violent world. It's become very, very dark. And the only response you get from Noah in the entire account is to do exactly what God tells him to do. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when you read the account. Genesis 6, Genesis 7, Genesis 8, Noah never says a word. He's the recipient of the conversation, but he never talks back. He just engages and does exactly what God called him to do. So we find Noah being very, very obedient to the things that God has called him to do. After he's told him it's a very violent world, Noah knows to be sure as he looks around from an outside view, you would say things look pretty good. If you were living at that time, you would look around and say, what's going on? These people are prospering. They're growing great crops. They're learning animal husbandry. They advance the science of music. They're discovering the mining process. Their economy is booming. But Noah looks around and he knows exactly what God is talking about because God has a true knowledge of what's occurring, that wickedness is afoot. And so the proof of that is in God's command in verse 14, make yourself an ark, Noah. Oh, we're going to get into the details of that in just a moment, but just pause and drink in that statement because what you're being allowed to do is peer even closer into Noah's righteousness. And I've reminded you, he's not a perfect guy. He has flaws. Genesis chapter 9 shows that. He's got sin in his life just like anybody living on the planet. But he's walking righteously before God. And so we're allowed to see him actually doing the work of carrying out what God called him to do Genesis 7.5 says this, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Uh, how many of us this morning would not love to have that said about us, right? Like in the Bible, it'd be one thing to have your name in the Bible. It'd be another thing to have your name in the Bible in a good way, not a bad way. 
It'd be another thing to have your name in the Bible in a good way and have it say, that person, they did everything that God called them to do. How are you doing with that? I have to check myself on that and say, wow, because I know the things that Jesus said, like love your neighbor as yourself. That's God commanding, right? We have to check ourselves on that when we read this account, like God called him to do something. He did everything that God called him to do. With just a moment to think about and drink in the reality of that statement. In your walk with God, in your life on this planet, there's things that he will call you to do or has called you to do or has allowed into your life that surpass your capacity to grasp in the moment. There's things that God has allowed to come into my life I did not understand. I could not make sense of. I bet if we did a survey of the auditorium, we would find that would be common among us. God, why did you bring this into my life? In other words, the why factor is not always known. I'm amplifying that for this reason. Noah doesn't know yet why God's telling him to do this. He gets the instructions of how to build the ark, the design for it. He gets the information about how dark the planet is and Noah's living in it and he can see it, but he doesn't even know why yet. He doesn't know why God wants him to take on this responsibility. And so the reality is there are circumstances that we find ourselves in that are beyond our understanding. Here's how I help you to understand it through an illustration. In moments like that, when they come into your life, Remember God's conversation with Mary and Joseph. Angel shows up on the scene and says to Mary, you, Mary, are favored with God. Behold, the favor of God rests on you. But she's a teenage girl who's not married and she's going to get all the ridicule of the public. If they carried it to the full degree, Joseph could have her killed. They could stone her. See, finding favor with God does not always equate to getting the assignment that you want. Mary obviously recognized it was an incredible blessing for her to be able to carry the baby Jesus. But finding favor with God doesn't always mean you get the assignment the way that you want to get the assignment. See, I'm under no illusion whatsoever that Noah thought that this 100-year-plus building assignment is some kind of an amusement in his life. Like, wow, this is going to be really entertaining. No, that's not the truth. It's enormous work, incredible aggravation in his life. Can you imagine the ridicule that this guy took? But the image that comes out of Scripture, the, the portrait of Noah that's emerging here is one who's living this model life of faith, completely taking God at his word, no matter what. And so there's this portrait of him of just simple obedience to God and total trust in God's provision. And so you find even in the New Testament, these writers of scripture amplifying Noah's life and what's called the hall of faith. Look at Hebrews 11, verse seven, it says this, by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. That means, that verse right there, that means you're going to meet Noah in heaven one day. How cool will that be? Right? You up for that? I think that's going to be great. I'm going to ask him. I I want to know where did the ark land at because I want to know where it's at today. Right? Maybe I won't even care at that time. But I would like to know where did that thing end up at? 
See, on that point, what Noah's family accomplished was simply extraordinary, even by modern standards. Let me just give you a quick sequence of the events before we dive into some of the details. Let me just show you where we're going with this. Verse 14, chapter 6, make for yourself an ark. And then he goes on in verse 15, this is how you shall make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits. And then verse 17, behold, I, even I am bringing the flood of water on the earth to destroy all flesh, which is, and which is the breath of life. And then verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. Pause. In other words, I'm going to carry through you, Noah, what I was intending to carry on through these others, that through the seed of the woman, through your line, Noah, I'm coveting with you that your line will produce the Messiah. And then he goes on to say, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And then verse 22, thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. I'm personally very, very grateful that so much investigative work and so much scholarly research has been done that I don't have to recreate the image for you. Today, you can very easily jump online or you can drive down to Kentucky if you wanna see an image of the ark. Okay, let me just put an image for you up on the screen of the ark, the way that it's understood today that it was reproduced down in Kentucky. We're gonna leave that image up there for just a minute just for you to drink that in. I wanna just give you a few insights about the ark itself. First of all, know this, it wasn't designed to go any place in particular. There was no port of call waiting for it. There's no harbor. It doesn't have a destination. It just floats. So there's no sails and there's no steering wheel. It's just a gigantic cargo box going on a very long cruise. Who here likes to go on cruises? I bet there's a few of us. I know people who like to go on long cruises. I've never met anyone that wants to go on a cruise that lasts 371 days. I have never, and I probably never will meet anyone who wants to go on a cruise that's 371 days that is a floating barn, right? Because there's a certain odor that goes with this job assignment. And so God tells him in verse 16 very clearly, Noah, you should make a window in that thing because ventilation is going to be very imperative. So you got to let the stink out. You got to let the fresh air in. And so it was designed with a series of skylights and, and these openings to do exactly that. But here's the bigger issue for me. How could Moses have known? I, I want to amplify that for you, especially if you're new to church, so you understand this. Scholars, archaeologists, those who study theology very deeply are convinced, and I am convinced as well, that Moses is the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the ancient cultures, they passed stories down from generation to generation to generation. They're called toldots, T-O-L-D-O-T. And they're very faithful about reporting the details. By the time it gets to Moses, God tells Moses, Moses, you're going to be the one to write these details down. So Moses is living in the land of the time of the Egyptians, and he's looking back over many millennia, and God tells him he's going to write these things down, these details, and I'm asking, how could Moses have known these things? In other words, 
Who could have had the mental capacity to invent a flood story with such specificity that no one in the world living at that time ever could have imagined? And then to record that they not only imagined that they designed and built a ship of this magnitude. I don't know if you've ever looked at the imagery of it in detail, but the ark itself, 510 feet long. Massive, but here's a detail that was uncovered like 50, 60 years ago. Dr. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb wrote what is perhaps the seminal work on the Genesis flood. And I put reference to it in your notes today so that you can look that book up yourself. Excellent piece of work, scholarly research. They're both scientists and it, it still holds up today. What they discovered when they were doing their research on the Genesis flood, comparing it to modern boat building standards, is that the boats that float best as cargo ships all over the planet are built within a specified ratio of either six to one or eight to one. Meaning this, the, the width of the ship is most stable when it's a six to one ratio. In other words, six times as long or one time as wide or eight to one ratio. The most stable that we found according to the cargo ships today, they're built with these massive steel hulls, fall within that same framework. How could Moses have known that? How could that detail have been passed on to people living in the Middle East? How could they have known that a ship built to an eight to one ratio or a six to one ratio was virtually unsinkable? It's no accident today that when you look at the oceans and you look at the massive cargo freighters that are moving across this planet, they look very much like a floating ark. They've got a long, long shape to them in order to be very stable on the high seas. How could Moses have known? Because it had never could have been conceived by anyone living in the ancient world. And then I would go to the question, well, where is it today? I would love to know that detail. If it has not decayed over millennia, which many people believe that it probably has, what we know from the Bible is it would be sitting on mountaintops and in the crevasses of Mount Ararat in the region of Turkey. There, years ago in the 1970s, late 70s and in the 80s, Colonel Jim Irwin took an expedition up to Mount Ararat when the nation of Turkey would still allow people to go there. Now, you might remember Colonel Jim Irwin because he drove the moon buggy. You look at a four-wheeler going across the surface of the moon and an astronaut driving it really fast, that's Colonel Jim Irwin. He was a believer in God, and he decided after he retired from NASA that he would put his energies into finding the ark. And so he led expeditions along with people from the University of South Carolina and people from Liberty University. They're beginning to investigate, how can we find this thing? Well, they never actually found it, even though there were stories abounding of people who had actually seen it. What we do know is we don't need the physical ark in front of us to validate that this event was real. And here's why. Because the ultimate validation that it was real comes from God himself. Jesus spoke of this as being a very legitimate event. And he used it as a measuring rod in order to announce the last days. So he speaks openly about it, not as fiction and not as myth, but as fact. Let me show you what you read last week with that in mind. Matthew 24, 37. For the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, that day that Noah entered the ark, 
real illustration, captures your imagination, and then he goes on to say, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Another real illustration to capture your imagination. And then he puts the exclamation point on it. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. God would not come from heaven to save humanity from sin, only to use a myth to emphasize the greatest trauma that this world will ever face when the last days of this planet come to a close. Rather, he uses a factual event to illustrate how similar it will be to what it was like. And God validates it himself. Now, physically, the shape and the size of the ark are described in the most general of terms. And the exact nature of even the material that's used, we don't know. We don't have gopher wood today. The closest thing we think of it is, is like cypress, and that's just people speculating. What we do know is that the art of shipbuilding was actually remarkably passed on to cultures that were living not long after the time of Noah. So between the time of Noah and the time of Moses, there's a lot of research going on in archaeology in which they've uncovered in the region of Syria and the region of Turkey constant discoveries of things about the culture that lived not too many generations after Noah. Let me show you a quote that comes from Dr. Margaret Drower, and she's one of these specialists from Cambridge. She wrote on this very issue, and she said this, this was an age of heavy freighters capable of transporting bulky cargoes. They carried timber, livestock, and agricultural produce, salt, wine, and oil in large jars. Ugarit had grain ships capable of carrying 150 tons of grain. So apparently culture had been handing down to the next generation and the next generation how to actually build these enormous freighters. A wooden vessel the size of the ark would be enormous by ancient standards and modern standards as well. 510 feet, I mentioned. Think of this in the framework of a football field. Football field, 300 feet. So it's hanging over on either end of a football field by 100 feet plus on opposite ends. It's that large, like two and a half times the size of the largest known ancient vessels used by the Egyptians, which takes us to the flood detail now. So in the flood detail, we know this to be true in our world today. There have been natural disasters. There have been tidal waves. There have been floods. There have been plagues. There have been diseases wiping out millions of people. But there has never been anything like the flood. So Genesis 7 reveals and describes it this way. Then the Lord said to Noah... Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Just a moment, pause. That, that then right there, then the Lord said to Noah, that then is a really big then. That then represents after 120 years of harvesting timber, after gathering all of the pitch after designing and building this massive ship and putting up all the supplies necessary, then, and we get this detail in verse 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. 
of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Context, stay with verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights because God's patience was exhausted. Mercy had run out. The warnings were ignored and the wrath of God will fall upon the world. And the Bible identifies two specific sources for the water that's engulfing the planet. And it gives it in the most general of terms. Here's the first one. It says this, the fountains of the great deep burst open. So I'm going to break down what I understand it's saying in the ancient language so you can see it the way that most scholars read this. In other words... The enormous subterranean fountains of the underground rivers, the vast storehouse of water was released by God from the base of the earth. Here, the Hebrew literally reads this way, the springs or the fountain of the great abyss burst open. This is how scholars understand this. It's describing a shift in the tectonic plates of earth's surface. An upward movement to such a degree that it not only released the vast storehouses of underground rivers, underground oceans of water, the subterranean flows at that same movement forced upward all the surface waters that were visible on the earth, meaning the rivers, the streams, the lakes, the seas, the oceans, forcing the surface water to exponentially explode upward in the surge. Catch the imagery. The deep valleys in the ocean floor. The Marianas Trench, deeper than any of the mountains we have on the surface of the earth. These deep valley basins rising simultaneously, triggering all the water on earth's surface to rapidly increase and surge upwards. At the same time, the fountains of the deep are released in that movement. And all we have to think of is Sumatra, in 2004. If you were alive or you have memory of that time or you've read about it, you know what happened around Christmas time in 2004. The tectonic plates shifted, an opening of the earth, a 65 foot rise produced by a 9.1 earthquake, and 140,000 people are killed within minutes of a tidal wave sweeping across the surface of the land. The visual image is, is stunning, and that's just in one location. So think Sumatra all over the planet at one time, because the word that he, in the Hebrew that's actually used here by Moses when it describes the, the bursting forth is this Hebrew word that you see in your notes, this, this particular word, bakha, and it, it says that it means to cleave or to rend. My mom had a cleaver in our house when I was growing up as a kid. She always bought the cheapest cuts of meats, and, and she would work with a cleaver. And you could always tell when mom was in the kitchen because it sounded like a jackhammer out there. She'd get this cleaver out, and she's pounding and pounding and pounding trying to tenderize the meat. We all knew what a cleaver was. It, it had this sharp edge, and it would, it would separate. So she would use it to 
separate, but she would also use it to tenderize. That's the concept behind this particular Hebrew word. But if you looked at the definition, you saw that it meant to, to make a breach or to rip apart. So we're getting a description here of a, a global earthquake is the way that scientists who are biblically minded study this today and say, that's what it looks like is happening. If you've never looked before at the video series called Is Genesis History, I would encourage you to do that. Dr. Del Tackett, look it up yourself. We went through it as a staff here. Very, very good research. He visits with geologists and scientists all over the, the United States, helping us to understand the flood. Is Genesis History is the name of it. I think you will very much appreciate taking a look at that. Mind you now, as that is happening subterranean, in the exact same action, at the same time, on the same day, we're told this in verse 11, the floodgates of the sky were opened. So not only is earth's surface heaving, but the windows of heaven are released, meaning a, a deluge all over the planet to engulf the planet, and it's pouring down from above. Now, this is speculation. I always tell you when it's speculation, this is pure speculation. If a canopy did exist over the planet of the earth, and that's one of the strongest theories, that during this period of time that there was like a, a global canopy of water around the earth, filtering out the radiation of the sun's light, creating very much like a terrarium environment. If there was a canopy over the earth, it would mean that this canopy suddenly and forcefully collapsed on the planet. Now, the text of Scripture, it doesn't require a canopy. It, it is speculation at best. It's merely a plausible theory to consider how vast the deluge of water was. So this global flood essentially uncreates what was originally created if you will, a, a wiping of the blackboard, a cataclysmic obliteration of all flesh in which was the breath of life. The world of Genesis 7 has returned to a formless state where there's only water, just like in Genesis 1. So after 40 days and 40 nights of this, only one cargo ship on the surface of the entire globe and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And it sounds just like Genesis 1. The earth, once again, looks like it did when creation began. We're going to leave them floating on the water for a while. We won't finish that component today, but I don't want to move away from the factors that we've seen unfold as it applies to our lives so that we can see what God is communicating to us today. I began by reminding us that all of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it all points to Jesus and that we can see Jesus in this account. For observers from the 21st century, for those of us looking back on the accounts that are written here in Genesis, Genesis, we're refused this morning the luxury of standing in a neutral corner. We can't just stand neutrally by while others experience God's judgment in the story or they're experiencing his protection. Yet here we are. 
silently reading this very somber account of what God carried out on the earth. Yet we can't be neutral on the issue because we're forced to take sides. We're forced to take sides and we're left either to enter the ark and go for the protection or to remain outside as the waters close in around all the flesh. And we have to decide where do I land? Because this ark in which Noah's family found shelter from the storm of God's wrath, it's one of the most comprehensive types of salvation found in all the Bible. And by types, I mean typology, the typology of Christ. The thing you should be noticing as you're working through the story is, first of all, that the ark was God's provision. It was done at God's explicit intention, not Noah's. It wasn't Noah's idea like he came up with this. He didn't even know the disaster was coming until God revealed it to him. So before the flood came, before the ark was made, before there was ever even a drop of rain, even before the foundation of the planet, the method of escape had already existed in the mind of God. How do I know that? Because God determined to deliver a deliverer through the seed of a woman. And he determined that before the foundation of the world. See, the cross of Jesus is no afterthought. When sin brought death into the garden, we discover that even from before that moment in the garden, from all eternity, he purposed to redeem us. Look with me at Revelation, Revelation 13:8. All the way in the end of the Bible, it says, a lamb, Jesus speaking of, a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the ark was God's provision, God's provision to protect from his wrath just as Jesus is our provision to protect us from the wrath of God to come. If you agree with that, say amen. That's the clarity of Scripture. So we are multiple generations, thousands and thousands and thousands of years past the global flood. And we know there's another judgment coming. But the judgment hasn't come yet. And it causes people to say, well, you know, maybe not. But the Bible says God will do exactly what he says he will do because God doesn't change, last I read, right? Okay. That's what Scripture's saying. I, the Lord, do not change. Man may lie, but I do not. So Peter has to clarify this for us. He's an old man at this point when he writes this. He's at the end of his life, and he's thinking people in his generation, they're not getting it. And so the Spirit of God moves in Peter's heart to write this, 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
It has often been pointed out. I've heard it since I was a child. I can't remember not hearing it. That the ark only had one door into it. And the application is really obvious. Because Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. John 14, 6. No one gets to the Father but by me. No one gets in except through me. And so John 10, 9, Jesus actually says, I am the door. I'm the way that's in. But we find in Genesis 7 that God is the one who took the initiative to seal the door shut. Look with me at this. John 7, 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Somebody during the nine o'clock service afterwards came to me in between services, and they said, you know, it never occurred to me before of how much that action of God took away the guilt of Noah and his family, that they didn't have to be the one to shut the door and close everyone out, that God closed the door. And God's personal closing and sealing of the door behind those who entered the ark does this for us today. It reminds us and it seals and confirms the reality that there is an end to his patience and there is a limit to his mercy. But believing that and accepting that and knowing that, Jesus said it actually takes childlike faith. You got a five-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old in your life? Think about how that child believes the things that adults tell them. They, they drink it in, they absorb it. And Jesus says, you've got to come to me in that way, believing that what I said is true because I do not lie and I do not change my mind. You've got to come to me in childlike faith because childlike faith believes Charles Spurgeon said this back in the 1800s. I want you to see this quote to wrap this up this morning. He speaks to this very issue. The one who does not believe that God will punish sin will not believe that he will pardon it through the atoning blood. He who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell will not be sure that he will take believers to heaven. If we doubt God's word about one thing, we shall have small confidence in it upon another thing. Since faith in God must treat all God's word alike, for the faith which accepts one word of God and rejects another is evidently not faith in God, but faith in our own judgment, faith in our own taste. That's good. People could write like that in the 1800s because they didn't have TV. They weren't distracted that way. So the, the Bible speaks forcefully and clearly about this issue that we examine today. If people persistently abandon God, God will abandon them. It's called the great exchange. You find about it in, in Romans. Let me just give you a quick example. Romans 125, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. When you read Romans 1, you find three exchanges taking place, and you know what it says right after that? They exchange the truth of God for a lie. It says, God gave them over because they refused. If I'm going to put together a summary of everything that we've looked at this morning, it's going to be this. God made himself known. He revealed his presence but his ways were rejected and replaced because they refused God, they stiff-armed him. And because they replaced him, God has a, a response 
You find it, what God is saying in Genesis 6 and 7, okay, Noah, they've refused me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to carry out my plan through you. I'm going to give you a future. If you will do things according to my plan, Noah, I'm going to give you a future. I'm going to carry that promise right on through to future generations. You will be the fulfillment of my original plan. So that brings a special emphasis to what we find. Whatever God told Noah to do, he did. Meaning he believed and does exactly what God tells him to do. Emphasizing for you and I this morning, obedience to God is a clear mark of a person who truly belongs to God. Only the person who believes God's word and obeys God's word will escape the wrath to come. So through that lens, read that verse to end this, Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned of God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It is no different for you and I today. It is no different. Jesus is the ark of our safety. He is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. If you're in Jesus, you're rescued from God's wrath. And the kind of person you have to be to escape the wrath of God is to believe God's word and obey God's word. Pretty simple, right? Not so simple to do, but simple to explain. If you're good with everything that you just heard, say amen. amen. I know that that would be true of 98% but it's not true of everyone. So I'm going to pray for both of us, both those who would believe and those who would not yet believe, and we'll end it with that. Let's pray together. Lord God, I'm very mindful that even among a massive response of amen, perhaps even among people who are watching virtually right now, that there's a, a doubt a reason to say, I don't know if this is all real. Father, I pray that in the midst of skepticism and doubt that you would surround individuals who are questioning whether or not they can actually have forgiveness of their sin simply by asking. That you would surround them with the power of the Holy Spirit and that there would be a sense of conviction that if we can't believe you, what can we believe? Father, we are surrounded by a majority of individuals who would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. I, I would pray for individuals who don't know that to be true yet. That there would be such an outpouring of love from this community, of this church, and from the power of your Holy Spirit that these individuals who may not yet know you would respond in confidence, asking, believing that you will forgive and that you will protect us from the wrath to come. Father, for all those who do believe, I pray that what they've heard this morning would land as edification in their life, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with you, and that as a result of what we've studied this morning, you allow us to take on the rest of this day and tomorrow, a week from now, and a month from now, much more confidently about who we are in you and how you protect us.
So God, allow us to use this to speak into the lives of others. I'm praying that you would equip us, edify us, and send us out. I pray for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.